And here we're, uh, we're going through the book of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is a unique biblical gift to us because it's a biblical gift that'll uh, burst our pretensions. It's a biblical gift that can reorient our assumptions and help us to um, focus on the reality of what's essential. And it, in some sense, it's like uh, intellectual shock treatment to kind of shock you into looking at what matters most in, in life. And so what we're going to look at this morning uh, and our theme is uh, live backwards. If you want to learn to live well in the now, you have to live in the light of the end. And so Ecclesiastes can be seen as kind of a series of lessons to be learned. That if you're going to live well, you need to learn. Last week we saw what to seek. What do you pursue? What do you set your heart on? And you know what do you gain from all the energy you're expending to live life? And then this morning we're going to look, uh, look at how you have to learn what season it is. There's a time for this and a time for that. And so you native Floridians can probably be in a better situation to understand the dual dynamic that we hear in this poem, a time for this, a time for that. Some of you come from places where there's like four seasons and it's incredibly confusing because you have this whole cycle of difference. Here, there's only two. It is hot or hotter. That's, those are your options. It's only seasons. And in this poem, it's this balance between it's this or that. And so what we're going to do is we're going to walk into or walk through this, this poem in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. And if you're going to learn to live well, you have to wrestle with time. You have to make sense of it. And here there's just two, two massive lessons we have to learn that um, we are bound by time and God is not. And uh, one of the challenges we have in life is just we have an unhealthy relationship uh, with time. So you just heard the poem. So I won't reiterate that, but this beautiful piece of scripture, rhythmic beauty, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, going back and forth. And then in verse 9... So pick up in verse 9, what gain has the worker from all his toil? That's, that's the theme from chapters 1 through 6. So the whole theme, it's almost like this large seminar on what do you gain from all of your energy, your toil? What do you get out of all of this? And, uh, and then notice how he, what he says in verse 10, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful. And it's time. Now, Ecclesiastes is meant to be um, kind of taken together. And if you remember from last week, last week actually starts off. Go back to chapter 1 and look at verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be happy with. So he starts out, this is this unhappy business. So what we've come to is, is uh, the preacher, Solomon, Koheleth, has gotten to this point where he's gone through this journey down through the darkness, and he's come to a place of light, hope. There's been a turn. But that journey for him through chapter 1 and chapter 2 takes him through some dark places. He had to pursue success in all of its promise, and it came up empty. He pursued physical pleasure in all of its allure, and it came up empty. And then he gets to the point in chapter 2 and verse 17 where he says, so I hated life. I hated life. At the end of this incredibly successful life, I hated life. And then in verse 20, I gave myself up to despair. So he's gone into the darkness. And then a ray of light dawns. And that ray of light is that God gives the gift of enjoyment. 
this gift. And so chapter 3, for a moment, he's going to kind of stand in the, in the ray of light, in the light of hope. And then there's one more turn into the darkness we'll see before we end in the book. But here in chapter 3, he gives us, and the way we'll kind of break it down is he gives us, I want you to think about the one poem and then two pictures as we think about how we make sense of time. First, just look at the poem. And uh, I think it's kind of important to just read and feel just the beauty and how well-crafted it is. The key word, time. Time is said 28 times. And it's run in these uh, cycles of parallels. So you have two sets of 14. So seven and seven, seven and seven. You know, the creation number, the completion number, giving you this rhythmic back and forth, kind of going through the whole cycle of all of your life, your whole existence. You know, verses one through eight kind of give you the picture from our perspective. This is what it's like. There's a time you'll be born, a time you'll die, and all these things in between. Life from our perspective then in verse 9, the, the camera kind of zooms out, and now you get to see God's perspective. Notice the different parallelisms, the beautiful way. This is a Hebrew poet, poetic strategy, put things in parallel. This, that. Talks about the rhythms of life, the complexities. Did you hear all of the different things? Sometimes there's seasons that, in essence, act upon you, that you really can't control. So there'll be seasons of war you can be thrust in, seasons of peace. Um, did you notice how some focus on emotions, like time to love, time to hate, laughter, mourning? Did you notice how some focus on things you have to do, your work, time to plant, time to uproot, time to build, time to tear down? Some things are good, like life, laughter, dancing, embracing, some things are bad. Uh, mourning, weeping, dying, war. And then some things are kind of neither good nor bad. They're, in essence, what you make of them. You need wisdom. Is it a time to tear or a time to sow? Is it a time to um, speak or be silent? Is it a time to break down or to build up? You have to know. You have to have wisdom to know in this moment. Should I use my words to build up? Should I use words to bring down? Should I use words at all? Should I even say anything at all? And then you have all these different, in essence, flaws, that life is full of flaws. There's killing, there's tearing down, there's weeping, there's mourning, there's warring, letting us know we live east of Eden, that these things are happening, but it shouldn't, it wasn't meant to be this way. And then in this middle section from 9 to 15, there's three where he says, I have seen. Look at verse 10, I have seen. Verse 12, I perceived. Verse 14, I perceived. So he sees this rhythmic nature of life, and then he's going to draw three lessons from that. And I think for us, I think the best way to kind of unpack this for us is I just want to give you two pictures. Two pictures to think about how you can develop a healthy um, conception of and relationship to time. The first picture is uh, a Lego creation. So think Legos, or if you're not in the world of Legos, you can think Ikea furniture. You can think anything that requires effort and assembly. And then the other picture I want you to think about is a sailboat, sailing. So let's look at this first one. So let's think about a Lego creation. And what he's going to say, if you're going to understand time well, if you're going to understand your uh, life well, uh, and if you're going to, to build it, you have to learn that there, are, there is a plan and there are blueprints, but you actually don't have them. 
and you can't see them. Look at verse 10. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He's made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning or to the end. You, have, um, you can see that there's, there is a plan, and it's been constructed with beauty, and you have eternity in your heart, but you're actually not going to know how it's going to work itself out. Look down at verse 14. I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it or anything taken away from it. God has done it so that people will fear him. So two years ago over Christmas, uh, I, this was premature. So I, I hadn't I'd preached a sermon to myself on Ecclesiastes 3, so I didn't have the right perspective on time. And so prematurely, I tried to encourage um, one of my, our daughters to uh, start building and playing with Legos. And so we went to the store, and one of them kind of got captured by Elsa's Lego castle. And so we were going to buy, we bought Elsa's Lego, you know, all 982 pieces of Elsa's Lego castle. And for the Christmas break, uh, we brought it home and we were going to um, assemble it together. And so, you know, we open it up, pour everything out. And at the time, they were um, just too young, but we tried. We kind of worked piece by piece. And you know, if you ever built anything with Legos, you ever built anything with the Ikea furniture, you know, you open it all up and everything's just kind of there. And it's like, all right, everything has a place. You know, when we were kind of getting this church off the ground, we had a friend, uh, Carl. I don't know if any of you remember Carl. Uh, Carl came and helped me put together all of the, the, uh, all of the gray steel things that we roll in and out. And uh, there was these directions. They weren't too helpful, but Carl didn't need them. He just kind of held them and said, nah, directions are for the weak. <laughs> Pulled out his drill. And so we assembled it, and we got done, and there was this sea of nuts and bolts and screws. And I'm looking at Carl because I have no idea what's going on. And he's like, eh, better hang on to those. You might need them. <laughs> you know, you're building Ikea furniture. You want to build Elsa's Lego castle. Like going freestyle generally is not recommended. It's not very helpful. You know, everything slowly it has its place. And if you think about your life, in some sense, if your life is like the construction of Elsa's Lego castle, um, all of the people, all of the events, all of the circumstances, all of the times, all of the places, they've all come together in this mysterious and yet beautiful way that's constructing this person that you call you. And so many of those things, you have no idea what went into the formation and the creation to bring together even who you are. Now think about it, just in that room, we times it by, you know, a couple, couple hundred. And one of the things we see here is that the deep seasons of life, you know, the hard thing for us is that the deep seasons of life are almost completely out of our control. You know, as best we can, we can kind of set our agendas, we can try and orchestrate our schedules, we can time block our priorities, but there are just things that are beyond us. And I love there's two windows here that he gives, two keys, the beauty and eternity. Notice he says, everything is beautiful in his time. And I think it's one of the reasons that really well-crafted music or well-crafted art can kind of do something in, in your heart, because you just see it's like something comes together, and when it all comes together, it's, it's beautiful. I'm thinking, I, I don't remember who said this, but... Uh, Someone said that when they hear Beethoven, they feel that something is right in the world. 
Now, I don't have any musical sensibilities, and in fact, when I was trying to woo Cynthia, you know, when you're dating, you always try to pretend to be better than you really are, and so uh, I would take her, like, to the Winter Park. I don't even know their name, but they would do the uh, Handel's Messiah and this Bach Festival, and, like, just trying to stay awake was all I could do, but she was enraptured. But he said, when I hear Beethoven, I feel that something is right in the world. Something is right in the universe. Something checks out. Something that obeys the laws consistently. Something that will never uh, let us down. There's beauty and we can, it breaks through. No matter what season of life we're in, there's a way that beauty can break through. And then notice he says, God has put eternity into our hearts. Like deep in our hearts, we have this longing where we just know. It's one of the reasons if, even if you give yourself fully to the pursuits in chapter two, pursuing acclaim, accomplishment, and pleasure, they always leave you unsatisfied because in your heart, you're longing for something more, something deeper. It's like C.S. Lewis said, if there exists in our soul, a hunger for something that nothing in this world can meet, maybe it means we were meant for another world. And so there's eternity placed in our hearts, and you, you felt it. You know, we'll say, like, time flies when you're having fun. Think about those moments in your life where it's almost like you leave time, and it's like the world just either stands still or it just, it just flies. What are you experiencing there? I mean, you're experiencing, in that moment, you're experiencing a foretaste, a glimpse of eternity, of not being time-bound, of being so utterly wrapped up into something outside of yourself where you lose a sense of time. And if you think about it, you know, even for our, for our children, for us, you know, think about, you know, children, most of their frustrations in life, uh, well, that's probably an overstatement. Many, some of their frustrations in life are because they just can't see the big picture of what's happening. You know, we as parents or you as parents are working towards goals that they really can't understand. And so you will mandate things like what they wear, what they eat, when they go to bed. And from their little perspective, it seems like unjust, unreasonable tyranny. Like, why can't we have peppermint ice cream for breakfast? This is a conversation we have at our house, and I'm so thankful for Cynthia, because she lets them know you can't. I would be weak. <laughs> I'm like, well, why not? You know, start the day off right. But it's actually in the, the meaning and the order and the rhythms that we provide that their life actually finds security and freedom. You know, they're actually free from all of the stress and worry about trying to figure out how do you coordinate schedules, how do you pay bills, how do you balance the demands of time and place, how do we get you to soccer, how do we get you to swimming, how do we get the grass cut, how do we get dinner on the table? They don't worry about any of that. And actually in that is their freedom and their joy. And for us, we're all like children in that way. And part of being wise in the world is accepting our limited understanding of the big picture of what God is doing. And what it can do for us is it can produce a sense of rest. You know, some of you have very stressful, difficult jobs, and your job is all about deciding. And then you know those moments where you can be in situations where you can just be and you don't have to make any decisions at all. Isn't that beautiful? Where somebody else is in charge of every detail and they're driving the train and if it goes off the tracks, oh well, you weren't driving, you could just ride along. And those are beautiful times if the person who's driving is gonna get you where you need to go. 
And one of the things, can you trust the person who's driving along? It's one of the reasons, like Romans 8, 28, it's one of the most precious scriptures that we have because we're trusting in his goodness to work all things for the good who belong to him. And our confidence and hope is that he didn't spare his own son, but he gave him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? We can trust he's a good and wise if he's building this thing and it's going to be beautiful in the end. And we can also look to Christ who uh, trusted the timing of the Lord himself. Uh, it's amazing how, many, how much time language is wrapped up in Jesus' coming, like in the fullness of time. He came and he fully completed God's uh, salvation and his plan. And he you know, certainly had time under his control. But even when he began his earthly ministry in Mark chapter 1, he says, The time has been fulfilled the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I was struck when we were going through the Gospel of John last year, how often my hour, it's not my hour, it's not my hour, now it is. My hour has arrived. And that's why Paul can even write Romans 5, that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. But very often, we're like the apostles when Christ was ascending in Acts chapter 1, and they look and they say, we want to know, is now the time for you to restore your kingdom? And he tells them, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. You know, the secret things belong to him. So we can rejoice in the revelation that we've been given and be wise enough to recognize our times are in his hands. So we think about that image of building you know, this Lego castle. Second image uh, is an image that I think can be helpful, but this is something you might have to help me out because I know less about this than building metal cabinets. But it's the image of a sailboat. So think, I'm struck as you read chapter 1, 2, and 3. In chapters 1 through 6, one of the key themes is striving after the wind. It paints a picture of someone who's striving after the wind, chasing it, trying to grasp it. And he says, what do we gain from all of our pursuits? The wind is blowing, and it's like we're trying to capture the wind, but it always eludes us. And it got me thinking this week, like, why? You know, you think about the wind. I wonder if one of the key lines there is if you're striving after it. Like, it's in front of you, and you're trying to catch it. You know, because you, you can't really catch the wind, Actually reminds me of a lovely game I love to have our two toddler sons play. They'll go outside and they'll chase squirrels. And I've always wondered, like, what do you think you're, if you ever grabbed a hold of that squirrel's tail, what do you think would happen? But it's a wonderful game because you know what it accomplishes. It wears them out. And so they come in and they go to bed. They lay down, they get tired because they're never going to catch it. And then you think, what is this? Trying to, the wind is blowing and you're trying to chase after it. And it got me thinking, you can't really catch the wind, but you can ride it. You can't grasp it, but you can be taken by it. And one of the things he's going to say here is, how do you look at your work, your toil? What are you grasping for? And I think you think about kind of like the old mariners who used to sail the seas, and they had no um, advanced technology other than just like the compass and the stars. And they were able to navigate just with the stars. And I think in verses 11 and 12, he gives you, 13 and 14, he'll give you three kind of almost north stars that you can use that in any season you can look to and it can help you navigate. We'll kind of go backwards. Let's start in verse 11. He's made everything beautiful in the time. Also, he has put eternity into man's hearts, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So here's the second great lesson I perceived. This is what I learned from this. 
I perceive that there's nothing better than for them to be joyful, to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So it's kind of like three, uh, three North Stars to help you navigate the seas of the seasonal seas, the windy seas. The first, we'll kind of go in verse order. Look at um, verse 13. I think the last one is gratitude. It's gratitude. A book I'm reading right now is by um, Leif Anger, and it's called Virgil Wonder, and it's this beautiful book. And uh, part of it, he spent 10 years trying to write it and could just never quite get it right. And then a couple interesting experiences happen. Uh, he lives in Minnesota, and this is a perfect um, commercial for why you should move away from Minnesota. But there was this terrible s- snowstorm, and so he has to go up on a roof, and he shovels snow off the roof. I mean, just who could imagine such a thing? So he does all that, and then he had this work well done, accomplished, and as you do, you Minnesotans decided, we'll take a nice cross-country ski to celebrate <laughs> shoveling the snow off the roof. And so he d- does this cross-country ski, ski, comes back, and can't, like, he starts getting the chills and the shakes and can't, um, kind of regulate his body temperature and then gets incredibly sick. And uh, he said what it was. I, didn't, I um, don't remember, but it was um, for like four months. He became incredibly sick and then went into intensive care, was in the ICU, almost died, and then kind of came back from the brink. And he tells a story about this. He says that all of a sudden, as he was coming out of that experience, he got this crash course in gratitude. He says, I don't know if it was something physiological, but it's like all of a sudden, everything in the world seemed to be more beautiful. And he says, like, like life just flooded my heart, and I was so thankful I can stay. Like, this world's beautiful, and I can stay. And he says, it's amazing. Like, people all of a sudden became more interesting. Colors were more uh, vibrant. He says, I I was even watching a show of The Deadliest Catch and started crying because I was so thankful. And uh, it's a shock of gratitude. And what happens is you can go through these different seasons, and what they can do is when you go through the dark seasons, they can help kind of disperse the mist that can cause us not to see what matters most. And he, and he, Solomon here invites us, this is God's gift. And part of the book is kind of this beautiful kind of exploration of this person who has a near-death experience. They come back and they have to, in essence, relearn their whole life. And then, but it's filled with wonder. They're, they're seeing things in a way that most of us have become numb or immune to. Another thing I want you to notice can be a North Star here is just notice the perseverance kind of going back up. Notice what he says, the second thing in verse 12, after be joyful and then do good as long as they live. And it's just this, this sense of no matter what the season is, there's something good you can do and you just keep going. You know, in one sense, this is even kind of a lower bar than a disciplined, re- regimented life. It's more just keep going. Keep going. You know, Julio stepped out, but my, or, you know, triathletes have a saying. It's called perpetual forward motion. Just keep moving. Just keep going forward. At some point, your form is going to break down. Your body's going to be screaming, wanting to break down. You just keep going. Perpetual forward motion. As we're going through, for men's and women's Bible studies, going through Genesis, I'm struck by how much of their life is just keep going. 
I mean, think about Noah. You know, whenever you're in a difficult situation at work and you think, my unreasonable boss has given me this project, there's no way I can complete this in a timely manner. Well, I mean, imagine having to build this ark for like several hundred years, but just keep going. Abraham just keep, kept going. And so many ways, it's just persistence plays such a bigger role in life than even passion. And even if you have, you know, passion, if there's no persistence, it probably won't do you a whole lot of good. You just keep going. And then the third thing is delight. Notice what he says about delight. The very first one, he's, um, there's nothing better for them to be joyful. And then he takes it back to the simple pleasures in life, to eat, to drink. Notice how all, read through Ecclesiastes and notice how it progresses. It'll start with just finding joy in your work, finding joy in your food with one another, finding joy in your family. These simple things in life. There's a scene in the wind of the willows. Um, so the character's ratty, who's rat, mole, he's a mole, and uh, Ratty is taking him, him out on a boat, and uh, there's one of my favorite uh, scenes is where Ratty, is, he packs these picnic baskets, and uh, Mole asks him, what's inside it? And Ratty says, oh, not much. There's cold chicken inside. There's cold tongue, cold ham, cold beef, pickled Grecan salad, French rolls, crest sandwiches, potted meat, ginger beer, lemonade, soda water, and then Mole stops him. Stop, stop, it's too good to mention. Says he stops and cries in exity. Uh, uh, it's too much, it's too much. And I just wonder if one of the things Solomon would say to us, are there any, like do you have any wind in the willows picnics in your life? Just simple pleasures in life that just cause you to smile and be joyful that you're here. Like you're here. Pack a basket, fill it with some good things, and live well. I told you Leif Anger, he was talking about that moment where um, once he kind of snapped back into the world and could see all of his beauty, started wanting to find simple pleasures like that. And then he compared it to sailing. And he said, you know, um, often when you're sailing, uh, you can go into the wind, but it's really hard, and it's not very fun. But there's a way called you can sail full and by, where you can kind of go by, the, you use the wind, and then you get the sails, they come full, and then the boat just starts to run, and it starts to sing. And I think there's a way we can navigate through these different seas if we can have the ability to trust that the Holy Spirit is the wind blowing us, where we can sail full and by. Because the reality is, if you think about it, maybe sailing or surfing might be a better analogy for life because so much of life is, it's a moving target. Like you start to parent and you, try, you think you can start to figure out how to parent. By the time you feel like you have some sense you know what you're doing, they become teenagers and you got to start all over again. Or it's like at work. By the time you feel like you get a handle on one thing, things change and you got to start all over again and maybe just trying to sail and ride the winds. And then notice this last thing, and we'll wrap up here as we think about all right, where do we get the strength, the energy? How can we be joyful? How can we be grateful? How can we be people um, who are persistent in doing good? Notice in verse 14, he says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Part of the thing that led him into the despondency in chapter 2 is all of these great accomplishments he, he built up. He uh, realized that they don't last. They don't last forever. And the real question is, what will actually endure? Is there anything that will last? You know, we spent days building and putting together Elsa's castle. And it did not last two days. You, you have the barbarian horde of little brothers 
and it just can't last. And the question is, is there anything that can endure? And notice what endures is his work. What the Lord does, what God does endures. And as we have the whole sweep of scripture, we think, all right, what does he do? What does he actually do that endures? Or another way to ask a question, look at verse 8 and notice how the poem ends. What's the last word? We're going back and forth, life, death, good, bad, this way, this way, this, that. How does it end? Where do we stop? Where does the boat stop and we come home for anchor? Peace. It ends in peace. Shalom. How do we get there? How do we get to the point where we can end in the, all of the, the comings and goings and the swirling and the twirling of life? How do we end in peace? And you can start to see some of the rays, but as we read Ecclesiastes in the light of who Jesus is and what he's done, we can see hints at the great reversal that the gospel brings. I mean, you can even think about the gospel through that lens of he's made everything beautiful. Beauty. You know, if you think about um, he's made everything beautiful, then why is it not? Why do you have things like mourning, weeping, tearing, war? What happened? And what the gospel tells us is that because of our sin, when our sin entered into the world, death didn't just come in, but so did all of the forces of marring the beautiful. It made the world ugly. It made us ugly, made our souls ugly and the world ugly. So how can we, in essence, be saved from the ugliness to be reconnected to what's beautiful? There's a fascinating line in Isaiah uh, 53 where, you know, it's the great suffering servant that we all like sheep have gone astray and that he's, he's come, he's going to bear our burdens, he's going to um, bring us back together. By his stripes, we are going to be healed. But there's an interesting line that says, he had no beauty that we should esteem him. You think, well, how can that be? How could... You know, the, the Son of God, Christ himself, have no beauty. And the reality is when he came on the cross and he stepped down out of heaven, he uh, intentionally and willfully lost his beauty. He became ugly. He became shriveled. He took all of that upon him so that we can, we can be made beautiful. And one of the keys in Colossians 1, 20, listen to how Paul frames it. You know, he did, when he died on the cross, he bore our sin so that through him he might reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once, but notice he made peace. He made it. And it was by the blood of his cross. So peace is not just a season that can descend on you out from the ether somewhere and then you can just take it and say, oh, peace, man, groovy. And then it, peace is something that's made. He made it and then gives it and he makes it by the blood of his cross. Why does he do that? So in verse 22, he can now reconcile in his body and by his death so that in the end he will present you holy and blameless above reproach and complete in him. So now when we come to Christ by faith, he then sees us as beautiful and just begins this long, slow, steady work of making us beautiful. And then you can think about Revelation 21 there at the very end asking, is there anything that's stable? Is there anything that's secure? 
And listen, listen to like verse 4. Think about all the different aspects of what Solomon says. This is just life. Time for this, time for that. There's a season for suffering, a season for weeping, a season for mourning, a season for death. Um, but those seasons aren't cyclical. One day they'll stop. Listen to uh, Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Mourning shall be no more. Nor crying, nor pain. The former things are passing away. Behold, I am making all things new. Actually, these things are seasonal, but they're not permanent. So one day, every tear, the season will be over for weeping. The season will be over for death, and it will never return. Their time will end, but there will not be an end to joy's season. Joy will never end. You know, I think about as we were building Elsa's castle. Uh, we knew how it was supposed to go. We had this blueprint. We knew what the finished product should be like. But even in those three or four short days, I felt like we passed through every six-year-old female emotion you can go through. There were many tears. There were quite a few setbacks. There were temptations to quit. There were frustrations at the instructions. They haven't told us how to do it right. This isn't right. Well, how do we do this? There were frustrations at dad's intrusions. We had pieces that went missing. We had several pieces that weren't used. The finished product wasn't perfect, but when we got done and when we declared it is finished, the radiant sense of joy and pride was almost like anything I'd ever seen. And everyone gathers around this profound sense of accomplishment. See, even in the end, passed through all of those seasons, there was joy. And the beauty and the gift of the gospel is that you can, even though you pass through all of these seasons, there will be a day where you stand full, complete. The season for construction will be over and only delight will remain. And so for us, until then, we can go forward. You can trust him. You can uh, trust him that step by step, he's building and putting together your life. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We thank you for the gift uh, that the seasons are, that we can trust you in every stage and every age. So I pray for everyone who's coming this morning, no matter what season they're in now, help them to find the ray of light of hope in it, help them to find the thing that they know that they can do good in this season, and then give them the joy and the gratefulness that all good things have come from your hand. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. So as we come to the Lord's table, it's our, our declaration, it's our reminder every week on the goodness of the Lord, who he is and what he's done. So here we have four stations, so the one in the back will be gluten-free, so once the servers are in place, you come.